From New York, this is Democracy Now! These tanks are further evidence of our enduring, unflagging commitment to Ukraine and our confidence in the skill of the Ukrainian forces. Is under a nationwide air raid alert as Russia launches dozens of missile and drone strikes a day after the United States and Germany announced they'll send tanks to Ukraine in a major policy reversal. We'll speak to the investigative editor of the independent Russian news outlet Medusa, which just today has been outlawed in Russia. He'll speak to us from Latvia. Then we look at the new documentary, 20 Days in Mariupol. It just premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. This is the first time I saw the, the Russian sign of war. The hospital is surrounded. Dozens of doctors, hundreds of patients, and us. They're turning the cannons. Quickly, quickly. We'll speak to the film's director, the Ukrainian AP journalist Mstislav Chernov, who risked his life to document the Russian invasion. Then the Biden administration proposes a renter's bill of rights, but what impact will it have on the nation's housing crisis? The rent is too damn high, and millions of tenants across the country are struggling to make their bills. Meanwhile, the White House has been working on a months-long process to put out policy that attempts to intervene in the imbalance of power between landlords and their tenants. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces killed at least nine Palestinians during a raid on the Jenin refugee camp. One of the victims was a 60-year-old woman identified by a local hospital as Magda Obeid. At least 20 people were injured in the attack. Medics say Israeli forces at first blocked them from getting to the injured. The head of the Jenin Public Hospital reported Israeli soldiers also fired tear gas into the hospital, which reached the pediatric department, causing suffocation injuries to children. General strikes have been called in Jenin, in Nablus and Ramallah, as schools closed early and stores shut down. Palestinian leaders called on the U.N. and international actors to step in to to prevent further bloodshed. Israelis have killed at least 29 Palestinians since the start of the year, including five children. Ukraine's military has retreated from the eastern town of Solidar as Russian forces attempt to encircle the nearby city of Bakhmut. It's Russia's largest battlefield victory since last summer. It came as Ukraine's military chief said Russia fired 55 cruise missiles across Ukraine overnight, including 15 targeting the capital, Kyiv, where one person was killed and two others wounded. Meanwhile, Ukraine is calling on its allies to supply it with modern warplanes, including advanced fighter jets, after the Biden administration settled ship 31 U.S.-made M1 Abrams battle tanks to Ukraine. The escalation came after German Chancellor Olaf Scholz agreed to send Leopard 2 tanks and allow other countries who have their Leopard tanks to send them as well. President Biden spoke at the White House Wednesday. Putin expected Europe and the United States to weaken our resolve. 
He expected our support for Ukraine to crumble with time. He was wrong. The British-based Stop the War coalition blasted the move to arm Ukraine with tanks, tweeting, this is not the path to peace and marks a serious escalation. Arming Ukraine and sending tanks is a way—is a step further away from negotiation, unquote. Meanwhile, a Russian court ordered the country's oldest human rights organization, the Moscow Helsinki Group, to be closed down. It's the latest in Moscow's crackdown on free speech and dissidents, which has intensified since the start of its invasion of Ukraine last February. In other news, in Peru. Thousands of people marched in the capital, Lima, after interim president Dina Baluarte called for a national truce amidst ongoing protests since the ouster and arrest of her predecessor, Pedro Castillo, December 7th. This is a protester. How many people are dying for the love of God? Out, Dina Boluarte. Get out of the government. Don't hurt us anymore. We are suffering. Everything is becoming more expensive, and we don't even have enough to eat. We are Peruvians, and we are asking for help. Over 50 people have died in the brutal crackdown on demonstrators. Meanwhile, leftist lawmakers allied with Castillo have submitted a motion of impeachment against Baluarte over her response to the protests. In California, the 66-year-old farm worker accused of fatally shooting seven co-workers at two mushroom farms was denied bail Wednesday as prosecutors charged him with seven counts of murder. San Mateo County Sheriff said the gunman was not known to local law enforcement and had lawfully purchased the semi-automatic gun used in Monday's massacre. In Southern California, Vice President Kamala Harris visited the Star Ballroom Dance Studio in Monterey Park Wednesday, where she laid flowers at a memorial for victims Saturday's massacre. Investigators say the shooter did not personally know any of the 11 people killed and nine others injured in the attack. All of the victims were Asian. Most were Chinese-Americans. The shooter was a 72-year-old gun enthusiast who, in 1999, lawfully purchased the semi-automatic MAC-10 assault pistol used in the killing. In Virginia, the Newport News School Board voted Wednesday to fire and replace the current school superintendent less than three weeks after a six-year-old student shot his teacher at Richneck Elementary School in the chest. 25-year-old Abigail Zwerner faces a long road to recovery after the first grader shot her as she sought to confiscate his weapon in her classroom on January 6th. Zwerner's lawyer said Wednesday school administrators repeatedly shrugged off warnings that the student was making threats and appeared to have a gun. On that day, over the course of a few hours, three different times, three times, school administration was warned by concerned teachers and employees that the boy had a gun on him at the school and was threatening people. But the administration could not be bothered. 
In news from Washington, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on Wednesday ousted Democrats Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell from the House Intelligence Committee, carrying through unpromised retaliation for the expulsion of far-right Republicans Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar from their congressional committees in 2021 after they called for violence against Democrats on social media. Gosar's removal came after he posted an animated video where he murders Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and physically attacks President Biden. Gosar and Green have both received committee assignments in the new Congress. McCarthy is also expected to hold a vote on removing Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee, since he cannot unilaterally remove members from that panel. It's not clear if McCarthy has enough support in his party to do so. Two Republican lawmakers have already opposed the move, and McCarthy can only afford four defections. The three targeted Democrats condemn McCarthy's corrupt bargain with the extreme right of his party, as they put it. This is Congressmember Ilhan Omar. It is about revenge. Uh, it's about the appeasing the former president. All three of us have been a thorn in the back of the previous disgraced president. In Tennessee, the chief of the Memphis Police Department has condemned the killing of Tyree Nichols, who died of kidney failure and cardiac arrest on January 10th, three days after his violent arrest following a traffic stop. Five Memphis police officers and two fire department employees have been fired in the wake of Nichols' killing. An independent autopsy found Tyree suffered extensive bleeding after officers pepper-sprayed, tased, restrained, kicked, and beat him for three minutes. Police Chief C.J. Davis urged Memphis residents not to turn to violence or property destruction after body camera video of the assault is released. This is a failing of basic humanity toward another individual. This incident was heinous, reckless, and inhumane. And in the vein of transparency, when the video is released in the coming days, you will see this for yourselves. A federal prosecutor has launched civil rights probe into the killing. A 2016 lawsuit says one of the five officers who have been fired for beating Tyree allegedly assaulted a prisoner. In New York, former Columbia University OBGYN Robert Haddon has been convicted of federal sexual abuse charges, including sex trafficking. Dr. Haddon sexually assaulted dozens of women patients over two decades, including Evelyn Yang, the wife of the former presidential candidate Andrew Yang. Among the convictions, Haddon was found guilty of luring patients across state lines for examinations during which he assaulted them. U.S. Attorney Damian Williams called Haddon, Haddon a predator in a white coat. Columbia University, Irving Medical Center and New York Presbyterian Hospital had previously settled over with over 200 survivors for $236 million. The social media giant Meta has reinstated former President Donald Trump's accounts on Facebook and Instagram. 
Trump was barred from the platforms two years ago over his comments to supporters who rioted at the U.S. Capitol January 6, 2021. Meta's president of global affairs, Nick Clegg, wrote in a blog post, quote, the public should be able to hear what their politicians are saying, the good, the bad and the ugly, so that they can make informed choices at the ballot box, unquote. Clegg said Trump could be suspended again for up to two years if he once again violates Meta's guidelines. In India, police detained students at New Delhi's Jamia Millia Islamia University before a planned screening of a new BBC documentary about Prime Minister Narendra Modi, which has sparked a growing firestorm and has been banned by Modi. At the prestigious Jawaharlal Nehru University, also in New Delhi, authorities resorted to cutting power to the student union hall to thwart a screening. The film, in part, covers Modi's time as chief minister of Gujarat, when he was accused of complicity in the deadly 2002 anti-Muslim riots, which killed an estimated 1,000 people. Modi's government, which is coming under mounting accusations of censorship, also ordered Twitter and YouTube to remove excerpts of the film from their sites. At the Vatican, Pope Francis has criticized laws criminalizing LGBTQ people in remarks hailed by rights groups as historic. Speaking to the Associated Press Tuesday, Pope Francis said, quote, being homosexual is not a crime. It's not a crime. Yes, but it's a sin. But it's also a sin to lack charity with one another, he said. Pope Francis added Catholic bishops should play an active role in opposing and repealing anti-LGBTQ laws. The Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation responded in a statement, quote, Today's statements from Pope Francis are a game-changer in the fight to decriminalize LGBTQ people and also illustrate the work that needs to be done with religious leaders to finally show that being LGBTQ is not a sin. Unquote. Lawmakers in the United Kingdom have strongly criticized the Church of England after the Archbishop of Canterbury said bishops are set to uphold a ban on marriage equality when they meet next month to determine church policy. This month, the Church of England apologized for its past treatment of LGBTQ people and said priests will be allowed to bless civil unions of same-sex couples, even as it signaled those couples would still be barred from getting married in its churches. This is Labour Member of Parliament Chris Bryant speaking Tuesday in the House of Commons. I think there's still a cruelty in what the bishops have brought forward. There's a sort of hypocrisy. I know they're trying to square everything off, but in the end, there's a hypocrisy that will bless the individuals, but not the relationship. And Republican freshman Congress member George Santos is coming under fresh scrutiny after he filed updated financial reports indicating that over $600,000 of campaign funds were not personal loans, as he had previously claimed. It's not clear yet where the money came from. The New York Congress member has faced mounting calls to resign and triggered multiple investigations for lying about large portions of his resume and life history. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, we look at the new documentary, 20 Days in Mariupol. It just premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. We'll speak with its director and award-winning AP videographer. Stay with us. 
ці гарячі грудневі нерви. Це не хвилі, це просто люди. Нерозривно, безперервно. Це не хвилі, це просто нерви. Майже голі, ще гарячі. Хай не змерзнуть, хай не звернуть Хай сміються, хай не плачуть Ці гранітні грудневі груди Ці гарячі грудневі нерви Це не хвилі, це просто люди Нерозривно, безперевно Це не хвилі, це просто нерви Gruden, December by Doc Daughters. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman, here in New York with Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, Ukraine has declared a nationwide air raid alert as Russia's launched dozens of missile and drone attacks across the country. At least one person has died in the capital, Kyiv, today. The Russian strikes come one day after the United States and Germany announced they would both send tanks to Ukraine in a major reversal of policy. With the war now in its 12th month, we look at the U.S. plans to send 31 Abrams tanks, and Germany will send 14 Leopard 2 tanks. Germany's also given approval to other European nations to send German-made tanks to Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russia is intensifying its internal crackdown on domestic critics. On Wednesday, a Russian court ordered the closing of the Moscow-Helsinki Group, Russia's oldest human rights organization. And just before our broadcast, the Russian prosecutor general's office designated the independent Russian news outlet Medusa as a, quote, illegal, undesirable organization. In a statement, Russian authorities said the news outlet poses a, quote, threat to the foundations of the Russian Federation's constitutional order and national security. We had already planned to speak with Alexei Kovalov an investigative editor with Medusa, on today's show. But he had to cancel minutes before we went to air due to this breaking news of Putin making his organization illegal. We turn now to 20 Days in Mariupol, a new documentary about the early days of Russia's invasion of Ukraine that's just premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah. Reporters from the Associated Press risk their lives to stay in Mariupol and document Russia's attack even after international journalists left. They were Ukrainian journalists. This is an excerpt from 20 Days in Mariupol, which was produced jointly by the Associated Press and PBS Frontline. Signal 112, over. Signal 112, over. Signal, by hospital number two. There are tanks with the letter Z. 
Did you see it? I saw it myself, with my own eyes. I have a visual on it myself, by hospital number two, opposite the church, where the buses are parked. Tanks have entered with the letter Z. Film it. This is the first time I saw Z, the Russian sign of war. hospital is surrounded. Dozens of doctors, hundreds of patients, and us. Yes, I'm with the journalist. Yes, I'm with the journalist. I have no illusions about what will happen to us if we are caught. They're turning the cannons. Quickly, quickly. That's an excerpt from 20 Days of Mariupol. It's just premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah. We're joined now by the film's director and cinematographer, Mr. Slav Chernoff. He's an award-winning Associated Press journalist from Ukraine, also the president of the Ukrainian Association of Professional Photographers. In addition to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Chernoff has covered the wars in Iraq— in Syria, in Nagorno-Karabakh, and Afghanistan. He's also author of the novel The Dream Time, which draws heavily on his experience as a war correspondent. Um, it must be a strange experience for you, Mr. Slav, uh, sitting there in Salt Lake City today, um, as you hear that Ukraine has declared a nationwide air raid alert as Russia's launched dozens of missile and drone attacks across the country, um, and you presenting this film at the very beginning of the war almost a year ago. Um, you and your Ukrainian colleagues, reporters, deciding to stay in Mariupol when other international journalists left to document the destruction of that city. If you can put what's happening today in Ukraine together with your film. Hi. <clears throat> yes, of course. And uh, actually, that is what it I usually say to the audience, there has been several screenings, very, very strong responses from the audiences, very emotional. People get, people cry, people get angry, um, people ask what they can do. But really, what I first say to the audiences is that the film is called 20 Days in Mariupol and describes first 20 days of the full-scale Russia's invasion in Ukraine, although it has been almost nine years. Uh, but those 20 days is just a number. There is a day 21, 22, and 30, and 90, and right now we are almost a year in. And here is, you know, this morning, these raids, these attacks, these rocket launches on Ukraine actually pr proves the point I'm saying that whatever they see, whatever the audience sees in a film, what, what destruction and suffering and, and pain of, uh, of Ukrainians, it's not over. It's it's not something that just in the past. It's something that is happening right now. And here we go this morning. Um, I'm calling my father in Kiev and asking if he's okay, if he's alive. And all my friends are writing to me that they're in shelters, you know, hiding in the metro stations as they as they just uh, try to survive. 
And Mr. Slav, uh, as you may have heard, we uh, announced earlier we were supposed to be joined uh, by one of the editors of the independent Russian news site, uh, Medusa. <laughs> he had to cancel because... <clears throat> Russia has just designated uh, the uh, media outlet as an illegal, undesirable organization. Uh, could you uh, speak also, before we turn uh, more at length to your documentary, about what you know of the crackdown within Russia on any kind of uh, dissent or opposition to this war? Well, it has, has been going on for years and since the Russian invasion, the full-scale Russian invasion started, um, has been going on more and more. And the, the purpose of that is obviously to to deprive people who are against this war, to deprive Russians who are against this war of arguments. Because having, having a second opinion, having an alternative opinion, having an alternative uh, media who who shed light on crimes of Russia in Ukraine, <clears throat> giving people tools to argue with their government. And so therefore, um, I guess that is a, a, a tactics to, to deprive people of those arguments. But again, um, there are a lot of Russian journalists who are you know, doing, their, doing their work. Uh, well, well I, have to, I have to say that currently most of the international journalists working in Ukraine on the front lines and, of course, Ukrainian journalists uh, who lost their homes, who, who, who put themselves in, in real life-threatening situations to keep covering um, the loss of civilian lives and fighting on the front lines, their problems uh, are kind of more urgent, I, I would say. So, Mr. Slav, take us back to uh, the moment when you and your colleagues uh, arrived in Mariupol. You arrived, in fact, just one day before the uh, uh, assault on the city began. So explain uh, why you went uh, and how you knew that uh, Mariupol would be one of the first places uh, that would be hit. Right. Actually, it was like one hour before the before Oh, yes. The forgive me. That's right. Fall. One hour. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we've been. So as I mentioned before, this this invasion started nine years ago. So um, through, throughout these nine years, we dedicated a lot of time reporting on the front lines and trying to understand the dynamics of, of, of this war, of this invasion. And Mariupol was one of the was always one of the key targets for Russia, as it is on the way, uh, as a, on a land bridge, basically to to, Cry, to Crimea, to the occupied territory, another occupied Ukrainian territory by Russia. And uh, Russia tried to take Mariupol in 2014. They failed, and uh, as on 23rd, it became more and more clear that. The invasion is imminent. There were so many s small pieces of the puzzle which we just placed together, messages from our colleagues, journalists, or just analyzing the the Russian state media who are preparing the ground uh, for for this assault. Um, we uh, we concluded that the war is going to start next day on 24th, uh, and uh, it was the evening of 23rd, and we just decided to um, to go. Uh, not to wait and to go, because uh, Mariupol is very close to 
Russian border and we knew that it will swiftly it will get surrounded. So we needed to get there before that. So we did and it happened. That so, surrounded in few days, just in a few days. A lot of the film, you're doing work in the hospital. Um, and there's this comparison between covering the dead, the dying, the wounded in the hospital, and the sort of comparison to what's happening to Mariupol. But I wanted to turn to a, another clip from your film, 20 Days in Mariupol, which is produced jointly by the Associated Press and PBS Frontline. This shows the aftermath of the March 9th bombing of a maternity hospital there. Where should we go? Just go there. Where? Here. Oh, my God. Cars are destroyed. Calm down. Calm down. Your legs and arms are not injured. Everything is fine. My mom. Where is your mom? She is inside. Go inside. Inside. Calm down. Don't panic. Don't panic. Watch out. Go, go, go. Let's go. Where? Go down. Don't panic. Careful. Wait. Bring it higher. Higher. An excerpt from 20 Days in Mariupol. For our radio listeners who are not watching on TV, the clip ends with a pregnant woman. This becomes a scene that is seen around the world, being brought out on a stretcher through the debris, her hands reaching towards her big, big belly, her expression frozen in shock. Um, you would later learn her name is Irina, as the world would learn. And Mrs. Love, as you talk about this bombing of this maternity hospital, if you can also talk about what we struggle with every day in our newsroom, and that is showing the images, because that is this film from beginning to end. You yourself are Ukrainian. You have two daughters. Talk about this experience and what you chose to show and how it was received in the world. It was a <clears throat> very hard choice um, to find the right balance when when we were editing the film to find the right balance to to show the audience the gravity of war without holding back, but at the same time uh, not push the audience away, but by the graphic images. That was the that was the very big challenge because it is danger if we don't show enough then people will kind of accept war for not, you know, because just images are not violent enough. They don't see people suffering. And also producing a film out of this footage, which everybody saw, but mostly without a context, uh, helped us to show the scale of the destruction. And obviously it impacted me as a father impacted me as a Ukrainian, as a human, uh, in many ways. And one of those ways were that 
Russians were claiming that all of these women are actresses, that this is all not true, it was all staged. That was, that was painful, too. And talk about Irina. Talk about this woman. You didn't know who she was at the time her—she uh, is brought out. At the time she's alive and yeah. what you learn happened to her. So when she, when she was brought out, the scene was already terrifying. When we arrived, there were so many people crying. It was such a panic. And then in the airplane, you could, you could see on the footage that the airplane flies over us one more time. And then they start carrying out the stretcher. And I've never seen anything like that before. We just keep filming, and they carry they carry her across this destroyed destroyed yard of the hospital. And I see this image, and I understand. I keep filming, and I understand already that it will have a huge impact if we will be able to send to send these images because there was no connection all over all across the city. I understand that if we will be able to send this footage, it will have a huge impact. To, to how the world sees it. So they, will, they are bringing her to, to the ambulance and they ride off. And for, for the rest of the day, we're searching for where to send these images. And then the next day, we, uh, we try to follow up with the story. We try to, to find out where she went, what happened to her. So we, we go to the hospital and Unfortunately, we learn from the doctors who treated her that she and her baby have died. Unfortunately, they both died. Slav, could you also, um, you spent a lot of time uh, in uh, hospital with medics. Explain what you saw happening uh, over the course of those 20 days as uh, medical supplies diminished, as there were frequent cuts to the electricity, to gas, how doctors were operating under those conditions. Yeah, so <clears throat> the whole city, after got surrounded, the whole city spiraled down into complete chaos. People were in shock, in panic. They didn't know what to do. And some of them looted stores. Some of them have just been hiding or there was no gas, no electricity. And hospital was in a terrible condition, too, because, first of all, no cell phone connection means that if anyone in the city gets injured, if anyone in the city needs help for just different medical reasons, they can't call an ambulance. They, they just can't because they can't reach the ambulance. Therefore, they either had to carry their wounded or, or, or people who just feel sick to the hospital themselves or to walk. There were people who, whose relatives were dying that didn't know what to do with the bodies, so they were just bringing these bodies and leaving it in front of a hospital because, well, what, what else would you do? And there was, medical supplies were running, running, out, running out. There was really little painkillers and little antibiotics. So doctors, by the day 15, doctors were just um, cutting off limbs, you know, if you would get the injury, which in a normal conditions would be treatable, uh, 
the doctors would decide to cut off the limb just just to stop the just to stop the sepsis because that was the only way to to ensure that the person would not die. Uh, that was kind of what was happening uh, in the First World War. I know, uh, and uh, we slept in a hospital. We slept among the patients. Uh, right on the floor because nobody slept near the windows in the wards. Everybody slept on the floor in the corridors. Uh, nobody could sleep well because there was a constant bombardment all around the hospital. And eventually, the hospital got hit several times. Doctors were treating patients on the floor. Um, there was really little food. Whenever we, whenever we actually were not filming, we were just helping doctors to carry the gurneys or carry food to the patients. Doctors never left the hospital. They were just staying there. They lived there with their families. Um, eventually, the hospital that that uh, we were at got occupied. But before that, you know, it got surrounded, and we thought we were going to be arrested. But we fortunately, we got rescued by Ukrainian Ukrainian army that broke us out of this. And you see that story in the film. That is the a pivotal moment in a film. And um, as we're leaving the hospital behind, we know that it gets occupied by Russian forces. At a certain point, city workers are bringing bodies from the street, putting them in mass graves, and soldiers shoot a nurse in front of the hospital. Talk about you um, filming all of this uh, and the kind of questions or your response to what you were filming. And also, of course, you are Ukrainian on the ground. It doesn't even matter if you were from any other place. You are a human being, what this meant, before we talk about your decision to leave. Yeah, I've never— Honestly, throughout these nine years I've been working in the conflict zones, I have never experienced anything like that. I don't mean that this war is necessarily the worst war in the world or in the history of humankind, but for me personally, that is the worst and the most dangerous and most painful experience I've, I've had. Because also because I'm Ukrainian, this is very close to the chest. This is my home. I was born in eastern Ukraine. Our photographer is from the city, which is a neighboring city to um, to Mariupol, and got quickly occupied. His parents were also in that city, and the scenes we witnessed, these mass graves where the children we witnessed, we witnessed doctors trying to save children which died from shelling and. Uh, they couldn't save them, and these, those children were later buried in in the mass graves uh, because um, relatives or social services just couldn't go and bury them properly, and the morgues were full. Um, so there were trucks that were taking bodies to the cemetery and burying them under the constant shelling as well. So uh, I don't even. I don't know. That that is, is just terrifying. But again, we are Ukrainians. We are international journalists. At the same time, we felt that it is our obligation to to keep working because that's the sole purpose of why we stayed, uh, why we decided to stay uh, uh, in the city that was getting surrounded. Slav, as you say, you made these extraordinary efforts uh, to stay in the city to document so the world would know 
uh, what exactly uh, the Russian invasion looked like. But despite that documentary footage, uh, as you know, um, your work, uh, the work of AP, as well as other journalists, has been subjected to uh, an extraordinary uh, campaign of disinformation and discrediting uh, by the Russian state. You say, in fact, that as you were sending uh, in the documentary uh images and dispatches from uh, a satellite phone, uh, that you and your colleagues were called information terrorists, uh, that you received multiple threats. And even after all this footage was made available, the AP photographs, uh, as well as the uh, the video footage, uh, people called into question uh, the veracity of the footage uh, and said, uh, some uh, suggested that these were false flag operations and that the women, in fact, were actresses and not really uh, uh, the pregnant women whom, whom you showed. How, how, how do you respond uh, to those kinds of claims? <clears throat> so one of the purposes of, of this film, of the film 20 Days in Mariupol, was to give people, to give the audiences across the world, U.S., Europe, Ukraine, Russia, for that matter, the context, the necessary context to, to, to see and to analyze, because it is very easy to target and put into question 30-second uh, clips or one photo which you see on the news, but it's much harder to interpret in a different way or to argue with uh, an hour or 90 minutes of footage with enough context to analyze uh, what is really happening. So one of the purposes of this film is to give people enough context to judge for themselves. Uh, that being said, of course, in a moment when we find out of this campaign, of this misinformation campaign that was happening against us or against AP, um, we were not surprised in some way because that that was kind of expected because the similar thing happened uh, to me in 2014, uh, when I was one of the first international journalists who arrived at the scene of MH17 Downing, which uh, now we learned from the uh, from the results of the court cases have been shot down by Russian forces that were in Ukraine at that time, uh, and those images sparked in, sparked a wave of the misinformation too. Um, so. What I'm trying to say here is that um, our work uh, is uh, not really influenced by by all this misinformation, by all this questioning, because uh, regardless of whatever wh whoever says, we will just keep working. Our job is not to argue with anyone. Our job as AP journalists or just people who do um, the work filming whatever they see is to keep doing that, just keep filming whatever is in front of us and send this to the international audience. And it's up to international audience to, uh, to judge uh, what they see. And Mrs. Love, if you can talk about <clears throat> your decision to leave, um, how you were able to get out, and what happened immediately after, and your feelings about that. Yeah, right. I don't want to give out much of the film. I, I really think it is quite interesting for the audience to see how how events unfold. Uh, 
but I would I would say uh, we were very lucky because at the time we were surrounded at a hospital. We lost our car and we had to escape without our car. So we basically ended up uh, by not having any means of of to continue our work. We could not move around the city. Um, we did not have any place to charge our batteries because the hospital was the main place where we could charge our batteries. Uh, so our cameras stopped working. Uh, we didn't have our car, and we started searching for the way to leave the city. And fortunately, we got this help of of a person you will see in a film, of a person who risked his own life and the, the safety of his family to uh, to help us to get through these 15 Russian checkpoints, miles and miles of occupied territory. And the main point was not just get us across those uh, those checkpoints and that, that occupied territory, but to have all the hours and hours of unpublished footage, which ultimately resulted in producing this film, you know, hidden in a car to get that th- those hard drives out. That was like a mission to us to, to do it. And, and a Lithuanian it, journalist who also attempted to leave did, was not as lucky and was killed at a checkpoint. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, there was there was a, a Lithuanian filmmaker, great Lithuanian filmmaker, who also tried to leave the city, and unfortunately, he was he was killed. Yeah, and so the, that would that 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 could happen to us as well. We were just lucky enough. And to, the bombing of the theater the next day, which was, well, her, learned about around the world with how many people inside yeah. you'd been there many times. Yeah, well, that is actually a very good example of what could happen if, for example, we decided to leave earlier. Um, because we left the city, we left feeling so guilty that we couldn't keep working. And the next day, we learn about this bombing of the Mariupol Drama Theater. And we know that shelter. We know that hundreds of people are there. Almost a thousand people live there uh, from all across the city. And uh, there were no images at all. So we just couldn't understand what really happened. And it took us months to 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 get to witnesses, to to try to reconstruct what happened. And we found out that actually up to 500 people died there. But this is a good example of what is hap- like what could happen if no journalists are around. It's just like a black hole informa- of information that um, where we can't really know about the potential war crimes. That is why it's so crucially important for the journalists to be in the places of the conflict, of the places where there are potential war crimes happening. So, Mr. Slav, just as we end, uh, once the uh, film festival comes uh, to its end, where will you be going? Will you return to Ukraine? Yes, we are returning to Ukraine. Um, we are returning to the front lines. Um, I can, for security reasons, I can't tell specifically the place we're planning to be. But uh, what is happening right now is a good example of that that Mariupol is not uh, a standalone standalone case of of complete destruction of the city. Like ninety percent of all the buildings in Mariupol are destroyed, and they will be just demolished. 
uh, because they don't they're not subjected to reconstruction. But that is happening to every city Russian Federation takes now. Uh, it happened to Papasna, it happens to Solidar, which was just recently occupied. Um, but it's nothing to occupy. It's just ruins. And that is what's happening to Bakhmut right now. So, yes, unfortunately, that's not, this Mariupol is not the only city. And we'll just keep reporting. Mrs. Lovchernoff, we want to thank you so much for being with us, director, producer, thank cinematographer you. of the documentary 20 Days in Mariupol, which just premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. He's an award-winning uh, Associated Press journalist and president of the Ukrainian Association of Professional Photographers, speaking to us from Salt Lake City in Utah. When we come back, the Biden administration proposes a renter's bill of rights. But what kind of impact will that have on the nation's housing crisis? Back in 30 seconds. This house is on fire. And it's burning through the wood again. It's burning through the This House is on Fire by Broken Social Scene. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh as we look at how millions are struggling to find housing within their budgets as the United States faces an affordable housing crisis and how a new Biden administration plan announced Wednesday aims to make rent more affordable and protect tenant rights. Rental costs in the U.S. rose nearly 25 percent between 2019 and 22. This comes as investors bought nearly a quarter of all single-family homes sold in 2021, making homeownership increasingly impossible for people forced to spend much of their money on ever-increasing rent. The Biden administration's new plan includes a blueprint for a renter's bill of rights called for by housing advocates. But the statement isn't binding. On Wednesday, Democracy Now! spoke to Davita Gatewood in Lexington, Kentucky, a mother of six, a tenant leader with Homes Guarantee Campaign. Gatewood described her housing crisis. In December of 2021, my landlord decided to sell the house that we were living in so he could flip it, sell it, and make a profit. We have been living there for five years. How many times have you heard this story? For us, it's a home. For them, it's an investment, a vehicle, an asset, a commodity, a safe retirement. That summer was supposed to be a high for my family. My son had just graduated magna cum laude from high school with an athletic academic and an academic scholarship. Instead, I spent most of the summer searching for a new place for us to live. It was impossible. Landlords across the country were using inflation as an excuse to hike our rents at the highest rate in over 40 years. My only option was to move into a place that I couldn't afford. My rent went from $666 to $1,303 per month. I'm a single mother of six. Paying twice as much in rent has been life-altering and ruining. I've been seeing in some headlines that say that things are getting better, that inflation is going down, 
Let me be clear. Eggs are $5 at the grocery. My utility bills have been at least $450 every month. My rent has doubled. I'm waking up every day asking myself, do I have the money to feed my kids? Can I afford gas to take them to school? Can I afford our medication? Tenants like me, mothers like me, families like mine are suffering every day because the administration has failed to take the action to regulate the rents. Our biggest monthly expense. Mr. President, the rent is too damn high. Do you hear me? The rent is still too damn high. We need you to provide real relief for families like mine by regulating the rents. Nothing less. That's Devita Gatewood speaking to Democracy Now! from Lexington, Kentucky. For more on the housing crisis and Biden's new housing plan, we're joined by Tara Ragavir, Homes Guarantee Campaign Director at People's Action. Tara, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you just lay out um, what the new Tenants' Bill of Rights is all about uh, and your concerns? Thanks, Amy. So yesterday, the White House rolled out a renter's bill of rights, a blueprint for a renter's bill of rights, and a fact sheet full of actions that the administration is committed to. And this comes after a months-long process of engaging across agencies with various stakeholders, both in the rental uh, market, uh, in the industry, and with tenant advocates and leaders like Davida Gatewood. Um, one of the first observations that I have about the actions that were announced yesterday is that they do affirm that the federal government has a role to play in intervening in the power imbalance between tenants and landlords. The actions uh, announced yesterday also provide us some good organizing hooks for future action at the agency level. But the White House announcements fall short of regulating rent. And you heard Davida say it extremely clearly. The rent is too damn high. What we needed from the president was an announcement and really a directive to agencies to use every authority available to them to regulate the rent and combat the rampant consolidation of the rental market. Tara, could you explain how, uh, why and how uh, rents have increased so exponentially in such a short period of time, as we said, almost 25 percent from 2019 to 2022, and whether those rental increases are concentrated in certain places or basically across the U.S.? The rent crisis is a crisis that's really decades in the making. There have been decades of deregulation and privatization. The federal government has all but abdicated its responsibility to us in relationship to our homes. And therefore, the private market has swooped in. But a lot of their business is predicated on federal financing and federal subsidy. So the federal government absolutely still has a role. So the rent crisis that we see today is particularly acute because the federal government has been in business with these private market actors, has actually financed the consolidation of the rental market. And then worse still, during COVID, we gave away hundreds of billions of dollars in public money to private industry with no strings attached. And then those landlords turned around, they hiked the rent, they evicted their tenants. Tenants are facing the worst of it, and landlords are raking in record profits. 
So talk about what you call the essential actions the White House needs to take. The main things that we were asking the White House to do, which they failed to do in the announcement yesterday, but we're counting on them to do in the future, is to condition every dollar of federal financing and federal subsidy on a universal set of tenant protections, including rent regulations. The idea is quite simple, and we don't believe it's radical. We also believe that it's completely legal for the president and the administration to do this. So the Federal Housing Finance Agency is the regulator for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Those are the government-sponsored enterprises that provide government-backed loans. What we can say is, if you are in business with the government, you are subject to these loan terms. For example, you can't raise the rent more than 2 or 3% year over year. These are all things that are well within the government's authority to do. It's just a matter of building the political will to make sure it happens. What can people do in the meanwhile at the local level? How can tenants organize? And if you could address specifically the issue of corporate landlords. Absolutely. Tenant organizing is actually the only answer to the scale, scope, depth of the crisis that we face related to our rent right now. Tenants are organizing in unions across the country, at the building level, at the block level, in neighborhoods and across cities, and they're forging together across those geographies, which is great. What they can do is forge together, what tenants, what we can do is forge together into these powerful unions and actually use our power as collectives to go after the money that is extracted from us by our landlords, right? Our power is when we come together and like workers in labor unions, we can actually use that collective power to intervene in the money-making scheme related to our homes. Uh, we only have a minute, Tara. You're also calling for a database of all the landlords that are getting federal subsidies as well as an eviction database. Explain. Sure. We called on a database because we want to understand and we want the federal government to understand all of the ways that they are in business with private industry. One thing I want to say before we leave here is that yesterday the National Apartment Association was celebrating the announcements from the White House. They were celebrating that they had defeated rent regulation. This is an association that has been part of colluding against eviction moratoriums and for rent hikes across the country. We should not take pause in our organizing when these lobbyists, who are some of the biggest spenders in Washington, D.C., are celebrating an announcement that was meant to protect tenants. Well, we want to thank you so much for being with us, Tara Ragavir, Homes Guarantee Campaign Director at People's Action, speaking to us from Kansas City, Missouri. And that does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Studio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Massoud. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis McCormick. Uh, thank you also to Sanji Lopez. Check out our website, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodmode, Nermin Sheikh.